0: Hey everyone! You're listening to episode 28 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're speaking with Adili Kea, the chief operating officer of a fantastic organization called Serve International. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Cody Hobelman, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. On today's episode, we're joined by Adili Kea, the Chief Operating and Development Officer of Serve International, an extremely effective ministry that uses food as a platform to share Christ with those who haven't heard the gospel in Africa. Adili grew up in Kenya, where he received support from nonprofit organizations providing food and resources to his village. Today, he oversees the distribution of millions of meals to hungry people in Africa. Adili and Serve have created a sustainable model to help villages grow and prosper without ongoing support, and most importantly, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You won't want to miss the incredible stories of how Serve was able to overcome challenges presented by COVID to continue feeding the hungry and giving hope to the lost. Before we get started, I just wanted to share about our finish line sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take the next step, then you should consider starting or joining a Sprint. A Sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The Sprint Guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com sprint sprints are also completely self-led so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before all you need are a couple friends to get started so check it out and get a group together today and with that let's get to the show
1: here we are with adili kea adili thanks so much for joining us we're really excited to hear a little bit about your story and about some of the work you're doing with serve international
2: i am so honored to be here today get to share with your audience about the amazing things god is doing around the world and thank you all so much for having me on this show
1: Absolutely. So why don't you get us started just telling us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, and kind of where you come from.
2: Man, I have the craziest, most amazing story. I feel like people say that all the time, but uh, I think once I share mine, you're just going to see God in every single part of my life. So my story starts in the 70s. Now, I was born in 1986, but it really starts in the 70s where a group of missionaries from America go to Kenya on a mission trip. I am from Kenya. And when they go to Kenya, they go to this small island called Mombasa to a community called the Digo. Now, the Digo at this time are over 90 percent Muslim. And the mission for this group of Americans was to share Christ in that community. After a few weeks of trying to do that, there was no success. Nobody was you know, excited to learn about Jesus or become a disciple. And so they were getting discouraged until one young man saw an opportunity to make a dollar. And his idea was he was going to be their caretaker, their guide. And through this process, he was going to get some money. As he was hanging out with his missionaries from America, he started falling in love with Jesus. He started falling in love with just the way they talked and things they talked about. And it just happened that he was a son of one of the uh, community leaders in that area or the sheik or the Muslim leader. And so his story is after hanging out with this amazing missionaries, he ended up that day giving his life to Christ, being one of the first Christians in the Deagle community to give his life to Christ. He ran back home excited to share with his dad, who was a local leader. His dad gave him a choice. The choice was simple. He could forget about Jesus and stay at his home, or they would disown him as a member of the family. He decided to follow Jesus and his story is not a random story that's the story of my father and my father was one of the first christians but what people don't know about that story is that those missionaries who came to kenya probably their story ends there the story of success ends in one salvation from a mission trip they did probably in a newsletter it does not look very appealing or probably didn't get a lot of funding but that story does not end there my father And my family, we moved to the border of Kenya and South Sudan in the early 90s. And there we got to be one of the first people on the ground where the lost boys of South Sudan. In the early 90s, there was a big war in South Sudan or in Sudan at that time. And thousands of kids were escaping. And my father, the Christian, the man who had accepted Jesus, ended up being one of the first people on the ground accepting, loving, sharing Christ to these kids who were escaping war. I remember as a young kid helping him count hundreds of kids who walked through that border. Most of them had gone weeks without eating and drinking just dirty water to survive. And when they got there, my dad got to love on them, pray with them, make some calls to the United Nations and Red Cross. And one of the first camps, Kakuma Camp, was built in that place. So the story of my father starts his a group of missionaries, hearing about Jesus, saying they want to follow Christ. And today I get to do the same, same thing. So I've had the greatest experience of my life growing up on the mission field in Kenya, reaching my people, sharing Christ with my people, seeing my dad share Christ. And today I get to do the same thing for hundreds of people around the world.
0: Wow, that is an incredible story and it's just amazing to get that perspective of how the harvest from those seeds that were planted will last for generations. And you're living proof of that. And I'd love to hear a little more about your transition to the U.S. because you're in the Atlanta area now, correct?
2: Correct. And so the story is I grew up in Kenya, South Sudan, border in the 90s. You know, I remember getting a lot of donations from America, books, at this time, we were getting books like Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys, and these are books in that time that got me to dream outside our tiny village of Lokichogyo. This is a desert area of Kenya. When I went to the primary school, Lokichogyo Primary School, you know, we were surviving on food from some of the NGOs, American NGOs, so I, I, that was just normal life. What would be considered right now, you know, life in a third world country, or a hard life was my normal life every day. After moving from Lodua back to where my father is from, which is the island of Mombasa, my parents learned from missionaries how to bake cakes. And we ended up starting this small business where I ended up spending most of my days on the streets selling cake. And, you know, it was, you come from school at 5 p.m. and my mom gives me a tray of cake and I go door to door in the community selling cake. And this was not just a part time thing we did on the side. This was our survival. This money that we were able to make every night was what we ended up eating. So most times I sold half a tray, came back home, gave my mom the cash and went back out so that we could be able to buy dinner that night. But that was normal. I know now it sounds foreign. Some people, when I share the story, probably try to figure out what kind of mom I had, but I had the best loving mom ever. There's a lot of kids who didn't have those cakes and were going to sleep hungry. And so for me, from a Kenyan perspective, I had the best parents growing up. Parents that taught me what it is to save money, taught me work ethics, taught me about if you don't work, you don't eat. And I can share more about that on a different podcast. But it was just a great upbringing of me just working together with my family in ministry and also in business just so that we could sustain the ministry we're doing. We didn't write newsletters at that time. We sold cakes to do ministry. So that was my lifestyle growing up. Through doing ministry like that, we met a lot of missionaries from America. And when I was in my 20s, early 20s, my missionary team came and I, I was able to help them, you know, like a tour guide, almost the same story as my parents. And I speak different dialects. English is not my first language. And so through that process, I was able to help them translate churches in different places that they spoke at. And after the end of the mission trip, they invited me back to Atlanta to be part of the church that they had here in Atlanta. And fast forward that about a year and a half later, it was my first time to come to America. So that right now has been 14 years since I got here. The first time I went back and forth to Kenya a number of times, but the first time I came to Kenya, it was 14 years this September.
1: Wow, that's incredible. I'm so glad we get this chance to sit down and talk with you because I think you have such a unique perspective coming from that background all the way to what you do today and really seeing kind of both sides of everything. I want to get to Serve and the work that you do with Serve, but before we get there, I wanted to dig in just a little bit more into the transition to the U.S. I remember reading a book, Revolution in World Missions by K.P. Johanan, and he grew up in India on the mission field And I remember him describing coming to the U.S. and just expecting to see this huge Christian stronghold of passionate Christians and being kind of disappointed when he got to the U.S. just with how out of touch, I guess, a lot of the American church had kind of become. And I'm interested from before you came to the U.S. to you know, after you had been in the country for a bit, what your perception of Americans or of the U.S., especially of the American church, was compared to your experience when you actually, you know, saw it firsthand?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I came to America and I had culture shock. I had culture shock in the food, culture shock in the way of life, culture shock in just everything. And it's really hard to explain what that is because everything you know, is because of where you grew up. Until you go to another country, another place that has totally different upbringing, then you start questioning everything you grew up in. So, for the church, I think one of the biggest things that stood out to me was I think sometimes because of the amount of things we have, we get comfortable in America. And we've come from a very, coming from Kenya, there's this is almost like, I know the word radical is almost a negative word most times. But when you look at the African church, there's this radical nature of it. And the reason behind that, the reason behind the two differences that stands out to me is a number of things. Number one, when you grow up in a, in a place that you really have to believe in Jesus. Now, we all believe in Jesus, but there's another level where if I have no food and I have to pray for food and I know I can go to McDonald's, I can get money for my friends. It's a different kind of faith that. When you're in the desert and you're asking God to provide food for you or water or basic needs or healing, it's very different from America where I have a CVS down the road. I have a hospital. And we are so fortunate to live in a country like America that has all this. We have many doctors and we have great things. But because of this, sometimes we kind of softens us from, you know, the radical truth of what the Bible says. And so I have seen that being the biggest thing. You know, you hear miracles happening in Africa and you don't really hear about that happening in America. Now, one of the greatest miracles in America is that we have doctors. We have most of the infrastructure that other countries don't have. That is a miracle in itself that, you know, in the 200 years that America has existed, a little bit over 200, there's that development. But in Africa, there is just this sense of almost Bible times one of the greatest thing is when they watch a Jesus film or a movie on Jesus, they see that as current reality. It's almost like a reality TV show. And so their faith in God, their faith on Jesus walking on water is not some impossible scientific, And you know, we look at the physics, it's not possible. They see that as a legit miracle that Jesus did just yesterday. And so I think that if I could just bring it down to that, I think it's a radical nature of the African church. Now, is that good or bad? I don't know. But I believe that you see a lot more people walking in faith in African nations because of lack of some of the amazing opportunities and things that we have here in America.
1: Yeah, that is an amazing insight. And I mean, I guess if I could summarize how I kind of feel, I feel like in the US, we are sleepy in our faith, you know, we're just, it's easy to forget about it if you, if you want to, and just to go on with daily life for a while, and then kind of come back into faith when it's convenient. How do you think in the US, we can live with that same kind of radical, intense faith, living by faith every day, when we are inundated by, you know, so many of our needs being met kind of by default?
2: Oh, that's a great question. So one of the things I would say, and I just told this to a a group of people, and I could have it down wrong, but I think what you have amplifies what's in your heart. And so the more money you have, if money's, let's take money for this example, the more money you have, there's this idea that money is sin. But what I see My perspective is money amplifies what's in your heart. So if I'm a generous person, money helps me be more generous. If I am a servant, I'd like to serve. More money will give me more time to volunteer. And so I think there's this idea that we have to move to Africa to understand or change the way we live. But the reality is that we just need to change our hearts. We need to spend more time with God. We need to spend more time in the Bible. And if God can change our hearts, And that's not going to church on Sunday. I'm talking about diving deep in the Word. When He changes our hearts, we're going to live a different life that is going to be radical. And radical lifestyle is not, like I said, moving to India or Kenya. Radical lifestyle is what you do with what God has given you. So for Americans, a practical example is if God changes your, your heart by spending time with you to be more better servant, because of money you have, you will serve people more. And I think that's already a start to a radical lifestyle.
0: Amazing. I love that. Can you explain a little bit about how your perspective growing up influence what you decide to do when you move to Atlanta and you start to realize how much is provided? Like you said, there's hospitals, there's McDonald's or CVS, there's all these things that are easily accessible. How does your perspective growing up influence what you decided to do next?
2: Just being honest. Honestly, at first, I jumped on the American dream. I grew up with nothing. I grew up sharing a bed with four brothers facing different sides. I understand sleeping with less than two spoons of food. I understand hunger. I understand the things that we create statistics about. I know family members who died in my beds with HIV. This is not statistics. i I was there with their body and covered it up with my mattress and tied it up and took it to the truck. That's my life. So when I came to America, I got excited. It's like you get a minute that you can run away from your past. You can live this amazing life and almost start over. I don't want to sit here and tell you I was like, hey, I'm going to work for Serve and I want to work for nonprofits that don't pay well and I'm going to be happy doing this. That was not what my heart was pulling me to. I wanted to be part of the American dream. So that's where it started. So I got to work with different companies in the catering. And it was basic, like every you know young person in America working in the restaurant business and things like that. I got to travel. I was very fortunate and blessed to work at this you know small catering company that got me to travel to New York, to the big games, serve some of the biggest celebrities in America, Elton John, Donald Trump, Michelle Obama, You name them. And I got to be around wealth and and riches and I'm working 18, 19 hours. And I'm saying one day I want to be one of those people. And so that is the truth. I could tell a different story, but that is the truth right there. But what happened is I was part, my wife comes from a family of ministry here in Atlanta. And through that, I got an opportunity from the Atlanta Dream Center Ministry in Atlanta to go downtown to Atlanta and volunteer. And work, and I was part of their team, part of what they were doing as first as a volunteer, as a staff, as a student, volunteer, and staff. And that transition happened by me seeing human trafficking in Atlanta. You know, from America, from Kenya, you imagine America is this perfect world. People who call me on WhatsApp think there's money falling down from trees. They think there's perfection in America, but not far from downtown Atlanta. There are women who are getting trafficked, who are put in cages. This is a reality. This is not, again, a statistic. I have seen it. I have been part of rescues. You know, you see homelessness in downtown Atlanta. You know, there's so much pain. And there's this kind of push and pull where, one, you feel maybe if I do business, I can help one or two people, but what if I take everything that I've learned through ministry, Here in Atlanta, what if I took that and started really being part of the community? And so that's what drew me from probably the business mindset to really start ministries. When I started seeing that the pains that we talk about overseas experience here, they're different. People are not starving to death, but there are women in cages in Atlanta. As we do this podcast, there's women in cages in Atlanta. You know, people were listening to me right now. There's people in cages. I want to stress the point this of Americans. They're not foreigners. They're Americans. They're here in Atlanta. They are getting—it's human trafficking, prostitution. It's happening. So knowing that, knowing that there was no way I was going to go back to a comfortable lifestyle, and I've tried. I've gone back and forth. I'm not going to paint this picture that once I made the decision, I was like, "Hurrah, let's do this." But every time you get a chance to sit down with this women or you know the homeless men and, and women. I think it, it did something for my heart. It reminded me of myself growing up. It reminded me of Lokichogia Primary when World Vision was sending food or they gave me my first uniform. Somebody somewhere believed in me or believed in our community enough. And so I felt that it was maybe my personal calling that I needed to do something. And I feel like what I'm doing for serve, it's not just for serve. I pick up people for church on Sunday. I just picked up this lady on Sunday, picked up 25 minutes. I live in Woodstock. Go to church in Atlanta. I drove like 25 minutes to pick up this lady and a baby. She had domestic violence, so she moved out. But ministry is a lifestyle now for me. It's not a going to serve. It's not going to church. It's because somebody saw that paying for my school in Kenya was ministry, and so that is my story. I feel that I have to give back. I don't not forced to do it but just knowing that somebody did it for me i feel that it's my time to give back not just in africa but even here in america
1: yeah what an incredible story just every piece of your story is just incredible to hear and i mean you're right when you are confronted with things face to face you can't you, you can't forget that kind of thing and it changes who you are and what you care about so i think i think you're absolutely right i want to kind of pivot for a second to serve and the work you're doing there. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with serve and and what your role is there now?
2: Yeah. So so after years of being an operation director for a great ministry in Atlanta called the Atlanta Dream Center and doing everything I got to share with you, I felt that it was time for me to go back home to Kenya. I got an opportunity to work with the city of Atlanta with a lot with homelessness, human trafficking, with kids, inner city kids. At that time, in my, think, eight or nine years of being in Atlanta, I learned so much. And I realized I went home for Christmas with my wife. My wife is from Atlanta, originally from California. And we went with our kids for Christmas back home in Kenya. And it just was so painful for me because after years of being in America, some of the most common things that were there growing up were still happening. And I felt like America was a school for me. I felt like I came here with very limited knowledge and being in a school of ministry, you know, working with ministry, I got to learn so much and I wanted to go back home. So I gave them a day. I said, hey, guys, it's been an honor to serve with you guys. And, you know, I was overseeing 62 employees at that time. And, you know, I said, hey, I think it's time for me to go back home. So the information went out that Adeli is going back to Kenya and a good friend of mine from Serving International, who's a founder, Steve wanted to meet with me for coffee, and his goal was to be able to send me back well to Kenya, help me transition back home to Kenya. So after the third meeting, Steve convinced me. I'll use the word convinced because I was really focused about moving to Kenya at that point, but he convinced me to join the serve team, and it was a great experience. Most of my first few months was spent on the road going door-to-door, and that's church-to-church sharing about serve, sharing about, you know, the the mission that we hold close to our heart. And I had to learn so much in the first few months because fundraising was not my main thing. But the cool part about that is because fundraising or development was not my background, all I had to do was really rely on God and sharing the story. There's really nothing. I couldn't trick people. I don't know what people do to get a lot of money. I, I want to learn. So if you find somebody, <laughs> let them call me. The, people are so good at this. And for me, all we had to do is just just tell people what is happening around the world and how they could be part of making a difference. So that was how I ended up in with Serve International.
0: Could you give us a little more context on the history of Serve International, how it's founded, and really what its mission and strategy are?
2: So Serve International, our mission is we use food as a platform to share Christ. And the reason I smile every time I say that mission, you probably can get me smiling every time I've said that mission anywhere around the world, is because to me, it's something that I understand well. I understand being on the other side hungry. And what serve does, we go to the most remote regions around the world. We're talking about areas that there's no roads, no infrastructure. Most of those areas that we focus in are areas that people do not know about Jesus. These are areas that people still sacrifice animals for worship. And so we use food by connecting with local pastors, and that's very important. We have zero American staff in our international partners and places that we work. So we partner with local pastors in those regions, and we use food as a platform to advance Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the mission of Serve. The story of Serve is Steve, who's the founder, Steve was just a businessman, very successful businessman. He had done very well for himself. And on a trip to Venezuela, on a mission trip to Venezuela, he felt God shared with him that he was going to use him to support or to use food as a platform to share Christ around the world. I wish he was here to tell the story, but his story was, no, he didn't want to do that. He was so comfortable. He was great at giving. He didn't feel like the pastor kind of person to quit his business to go and share Christ. And it's so funny because God uses those kind of people, you know, the people that the world would say, you know, you don't have all the Qualifications. So he's not a pastor. He likes to say that, you know, he's limited knowledge on, you know, all the books of the Bible. So he's just a businessman who God called for this great commission of using food as a platform to share Christ. So with his business knowledge for years, what he did was he used his business to support Serve. So for about 15 years, Serving International did not fundraise. As God continued to bless Steve's business, he continued taking his money and pouring it into Serving a National. And so all the staff and everything that Serving a National had was about this one man whose his life was businessman who was doing ministry. And so until about three years when I, I came to serve, God spoke to him for him to fully commit to the ministry And so after years of doing business and ministry, now he closed down all his businesses, and now he's 100% committed to serve. And he has been committed all those years because he'd committed by his giving, but he was not fully engaged with his time. And so I got the chance to hire my boss. So he came back as a founder, and I said, hey, so what do you bring to the—what can you do? And so I got to hire my (laughs) boss as a CEO of Serving International. So he's fully committed, loves God and just a wonderful man.
1: Wow, what an incredible story of generosity. Maybe sometime we'll have to have him on the podcast just to hear what that process was like and the whole idea of basically sustaining a ministry just from your business without any fundraising. What an amazing story. So I know you shared a little bit about kind of the strategy that you guys use to bring the gospel to a lot of these areas where the gospel is not known. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what that looks like, or maybe with a couple stories, just for how you guys connect to the pastors that you work with, kind of where the food comes from and how all the links and relationships are made.
2: So I'm about to take everybody back to a moment in history, 2007, when the iPhone came out. And I feel what we do is so unique that I almost feel every time I share, I am Steve Jobs introducing the iPhone to the world, because that's how unique I feel we are. Not saying that everybody else is not unique, but we feel very unique in the space and the calling that God has given us. And so with our mission to use food as a platform to share Christ, first I want to start by saying this. We do not discriminate on who we give food to. So you can be a Muslim, you can be a a traditionist, everybody in our communities that we serve receives food. So I like to start with that because I think sometimes when we say our mission is to use food as a platform to share Christ, you know, it might sound that we are only feeding Christians around the world. But the idea is to feed communities so that we can use that as an answer to their prayer so that they can know Jesus. So that is a basis of more of an a practical level. So when I talk about what we do a little bit different is serve as two main areas or two main focuses. One is a disaster relief. So disaster relief, it's, it's around the world. Anytime we have civil wars, we have Famine. We have anything like that in Eastern Africa and other parts of the world serve response by sending food. So we've seen that in America. We've seen that around the world. It's a point where the community does not have resources. And so we get this calls or emails from all of our pastor partners around the world that, hey, children are dying. And after vetting the situation, we're able to respond by sending containers of food to that region. So Serving International for the last 21 years has done over 35 million meals around the world. So we are considered a very small organization in terms of size, but we believe our impact has really been able to change the world in terms of saving lives and bringing people to Christ. So that is kind of the response of disaster, disaster part of SERVE. The second part of SERVE is a sustainability part of SERVE. So what is unique about SERVE is we have been able to create a blend of food that we produce in countries in Africa that is used to respond to need in those countries. So just to kind of walk you back to kind of what current reality, current BlackBerry phone looks like for this example, is most organizations have this supply chain where if there's a disaster or need for food in Africa, churches will collect money, will donate money, An organization that is doing an amazing job will take that money and they will send it to this production facilities around America, some places in Texas, some in different parts. And it's great. I am one of those people who ate that food. So it's not a a bad thing, but that's the supply chain. Then you send out food from, I'll say, Texas or Florida for this example. You ship it all the way to Kenya, all the way to Somali, all the way to any country that you are focusing on giving that food. So here's a few things about that supply model. The original reason that came up was most countries in Africa did not have the capability of producing food to be able to respond to the need. So that's the reason that model has worked and it's been great. And I am one of the recipients of that model. The second part to that, that is more on the negative side is most times by the time the food is shipped from America to Kenya, The pictures of those kids that we were given to, and there's no better way to say this, but those kids most times are dead by the time the food gets there. We're talking three months, and most people will not tell you this, but that food, by the time we ship it to the location, it's not 10 days. It's not two weeks. It's months sometimes. And then there's all the political issues, security issues. So if you add all that up, most times the people that we are fundraising to respond to will never get a meal. We'll never get the medicine that we're shipping. We'll never get the items that we're sending. Now, there's organizations that have been able to create faster ways of responding. So this is not everybody. I know some great organizations based in Atlanta, some great companies based in Atlanta that ship real fast, and that's great. But for majority of the organizations in America, they don't have the access to this kind of company. So it takes three months to get the aid there. So what Serve has done is by Producing this food, this licensed fortified lentil blend food in Kenya and in other parts of Africa, we are able to respond faster. So that's win number one. So we're talking three months to three weeks or even less than that. So that's, that's a great response time. They say that when they say somebody's starving, that's about 15 days of going without food. So our hope is by the time we get the report, in less than 15 days, we are on the ground distributing food. So that's the first win. Second win, this is the greatest win. This is a reason I'd love to be on any podcast to share this, because this is what I'm hoping to, to change for all the nonprofits in America, is the sustainability part. So by doing this, we are able to, we have to hire farmers in Africa, in Kenya, to produce the products we need for our food. So our lentil blend has lentil, rice, carrots, kale, mixed vegetables, potatoes. Vitamins, it's all mixed into this bag. But all that product, apart from the vitamins, all the other product is produced in Kenya. So this year, we've already done this year, we we hire over 424 women to produce this. And so we build them greenhouses. We teach them how to farm, not me, but we bring in professionals. And through that, we buy all the product they produce. So if they produce X amount of lentils, we buy it all. And we buy in hopes that we're going to get funding to respond to a need around the world, especially in Africa. And so that's kind of our step of we'll faith. We tell them, you plant, we'll buy. And the great stories I can share about this are endless. The community that we are focused on, which is in Obaga, Kisumu, of over 400 women, this community is not reliant on American support. We are not fundraising for their kids. We're not donating to, you know, send their kids to high school. We're not donating food in this community. They're so sustainable that now that they're growing in terms of, you know, not just a women's group, but in terms of making an impact in the community. And the cool part about this particular group, they're all widows. And so we get to work with over 400 widows to bring hope through this system. So that sounds simple. But just by changing the supply chain from, you know, America or Middle East to Africa, and producing food in Africa, we are seeing some great change happening.
1: Yeah, that is an incredibly sustainable model. I love every part of that. And I hope that we see more and more organizations using that kind of a sustainability model to really hit every piece of the spectrum in terms of of making impact. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more detail about the other end of what you guys do about the distribution of the food, how you guys connect with pastors and how you get the food to them and what the work that they're doing looks like on that end.
2: Yeah, great. So we have currently nine pastors, we say, on staff, and that's in one location of Lodwa, Kenya. We have other pastors in Congo, North Kivu area. We have pastors in South Sudan, but I'll focus on the pastors in Kenya because it'll probably be easier to explain and focus on that one group. So what happens is our pastors are, we find people who are already doing ministry. We have this saying at SERVE, and the idea is we don't want to have SERVE be the one pushing you to do ministry. We find people who are already committed to do ministry, then we come and partner with them. The idea is when SERVE, because here's the thing, we always say nonprofits never end, but I know a lot of nonprofits that close down. The reality is that God has a timing for serve. We hope that that's forever, but that's not reality. And so when that day comes, we want the people who have been part of serve to continue sharing Christ because their calling was not based on serving a national funding or food. So once we're able to find these pastors who are radical lovers of Jesus Christ, these are people who are going to some dangerous communities in East Africa to share about Jesus Christ. Once we're able to connect with these people, vet them for almost a year, we're just vetting them. We're just, there's no commitment. There's no food they're getting. They're just hanging out with our team in Kenya. And through that process, we get to learn so much about them. We get to learn their beliefs. We get to learn, you know, what their fears are. We learn about their families. And so through that process, we're able to bring them in and start the discipleship part. Because the discipleship part helps us not to be able to, well, helps us, to make sure that what we're preaching in these villages is not some, you know, crazy stuff. You know, we don't want to set cults in Africa. And so the one year is more of the vetting, get to hang out with us. Let's teach you, let's disciple you, let's know what you believe in. And then after that process is is done, now we send them back out. So we do not send people from a different village to a village to a new village. We send people who grew up in that village back to their village. So they know the language. They know the culture. We don't have to fundraise for them to survive in their village. They're already living in that community. So we don't have to raise $4,000 a month to send them back to their own home communities because they're already passionate about their community. They live there. They speak the language and understand the culture. And so this is where Surf comes in now and starts playing a role of going in with food distribution. For the next year, we do not build a church. We don't build a well. We don't do anything. Our focus is the church falling in love with Jesus, not falling in love with Americans, not falling in love with served food, not falling in love with what we are bringing them, but falling in love with Jesus. So when they fall in love with Jesus, when we feel that there's a growth in the community where they've come, they understand that Jesus is the provider, not serving the national, but Jesus Christ. That's when we move to a third phase, which is a building of a church. Sometimes this phase could be Four years later, but our goal is always a third year to build a church. Now, the church is the first structure that exists in that village. You can, everybody knows about this church because you're talking about desert. You're talking about, you know, driving three hours, not seeing one, a structure, one building. And then in the middle of the desert, right there, we were able to put the first structure building. Now, that building is a church, will be used for church but also will be used by other organizations or other people as, school, as a school, as a clinic, and as different things. And what happens because of that church there and probably a well that we're able to support in the future, we come from a village of 100 people who do not know about Jesus to four or five years later, a village of 600 people who know Jesus. The whole community is based around Christ. The whole community is based about believing in Jesus. And now they're thriving. They're also thriving through their greenhouses. They're thriving with a personal relationship with God. And at that process, we can say we have graduated a village. And that's more the sustainability part. So that's not a response to a disaster. That is a long-term investment in that village knowing about Jesus Christ.
0: Well, Adila, you already answered my next question. I was going to ask how you kind of progress and prevent Serve International from having to have all these different villages depend on your partners to provide for them ongoing. So to get to phase three and to implement that church and and greenhouses and have that village really dependent on Jesus, but also on themselves to, to provide their own needs that weren't being provided for before that time, it's, it's truly an amazing model. And I'm very impressed by how well it thought out it is, and that it's working. It's just very impressive. I'd love to hear your opinion on how to balance providing both physical and spiritual needs. I know you talked about these different phases, and you start with providing the food, the the physical need, and transition into providing for the spiritual. But how do you think about the balance between the two?
2: I think I'll answer that with a story, and I'm not sure if I just get this was you the other day, but we just did a there's a disaster relief in one of the villages that we're creating a community from. And there was there was two kids that died from starvation. That's a statistic that I hope that we never, ever, ever have to say again. And we responded. And when we got there, the villagers, we were unloading our our land cruiser and the villagers said, hey, hey, guys, wait, 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 wait a minute. As we do this, there's another village down, you know, and when they say down the street, it might be another four hour drive. So never trust me on directions in Kenya. When a Kenyan tells you right down the street, don't listen to them because that could be seriously hours of driving. But they say there's another village that I've been praying. We've been telling them about Jesus and they have been praying for food. So what we want to do is we want to get this boxes back in your lane cruiser and we want you to send this food To their village, and our team was like, "Hey, what if you know we'll we'll do it?" And they say, "No, we want that this to be an answer to their prayer." And the village of people that were hungry, they loaded our Land Cruiser back, and our team of pastors took it to the next village. And now that village knows Jesus. The unique part about that is that the people that we're serving have not been attached to the materialistic to the resources; they've been attached to Jesus. And I think that's where if you go in with a do good project, I think sometimes it could get a little bit cloudy because if you go in with hopes just to do good things without sharing Jesus as, you know, that is your focus, I think then you get people to attach to the resources that you're bringing. But if you go with Jesus as a good news, then people get attached to Jesus, not the resources that you're bringing. I can't say we're perfect. I'm sure there's places that we can find that people that I know probably just like served because of the food. But as a a man who loves to get data, I see that our focus on Jesus has been our primary mission. And just this year, this year, we've had over 8,000 salvations this year. And we are looking at probably will be, yeah, this year. And last year, we had over 6,000 salvations. I think to be exact, 6,290 salvations last year. And so we have over 8,000 salvations this year. And that is a great thing. The reason I share that number, you have not even heard how much food we have given out this year because that is not of importance. It is important to some people who donate to us because that's their focus. And we have to collect that data for them But the greatest data I can tell you is that over 8,000 people have come to Jesus. Now, when I say data, those are not people who raise their hands up and put it down. These are people that we are able to disciple. Our pastors are big about not just baptizing everybody. They want to make sure everybody understands what they're signing up for. So I don't believe Serve international is the best at relief food around the world. I think there's other organizations that I believe are That's their focus. That's what they want to do. I think United Nation does food better than serving a national. But what I think is our calling is to use food as a platform to share Christ. And I never brag, but I can say this, that we believe we're in our calling. We believe when we are at the last day, we want to look back and say, we use this platform to share Christ. So we look at a win, not in the amount of food we produce. That's important because the more food we have, the more people we can reach. So food is key to our success, but it's not the reason we go out every day. I don't wake up thinking, how much food can we give? I wake up thinking, years ago, there's somebody who came and shared Christ to my parents, to my dad, and I hope that today I and my team can share Jesus to another person so one day somebody can have the same story. So that's what we do.
0: Ideally, last time we talked, you shared a really interesting story about how Serve International was able to kind of pivot strategies a little bit because of complications due to COVID. And I was hoping you could just share a little bit about how agile Serve was and what results you saw from that.
2: Yeah, so fundraising. So 2018 is my first time ever fundraising. Okay, it was a hard year. And finally, finally was able to raise a million dollars. Like at the end of the year, we barely made it. (laughs) And that was a big, you know, moment for for us as a team, because you have to understand for years, uh, Steve had personally funded Serve. So we never had to go and tell our donors, like, here's an impact report. Here's what you need. We had just kind of had people hang out with us. We'd never have to ask them for anything. And so that was 2018, 2019, we kind of got focused we had a strategy we had a funnel i learned some stuff i went to to all this uh, conferences i felt like i was a developer now and so we we had a strategy and we got to increase that year by about 20 percent. and so we started seeing growth and then 2020 now is like the year we believe it is our year now we are have momentum everything is going great and we have all this events that we booked. I'm not going to name the band, but it's a big Christian band. We had them at a church here in Woodstock called His Hands Church, which we were doing an event there. And we were going to pack that place out with 2,000 people. It used to be a Kmart. So we knew that this year was going to be a big year. And then COVID happened. And I started getting calls from all the pastors, all the friends. And it was cancellation, cancellation, cancellation. And all this excitement and dreams literally just came falling down. In a matter of two days, we would lost every event. Golf, you name every event. I don't know what people do out there, but we came back to zero. We had no mission trips, nothing. And this is now early March. And now we, we realize that everything we had set is gone. Honestly, we had about two days. We thought, okay, we're going to probably close... Serve. This is it. Serve timeline has come to an end. And then we realized, we stopped and said, okay, how can we continue at this moment? How can we continue serving our people, but also staying safe? And the biggest missing link we found out was, back to the conversation we had, was the supply chain. Because Serve for years had moved the supply chain to Kenya, we were the only people in the nonprofit world that were able to continue responding into the community. So the lockdown in other countries, people were dying in their homes. And so we were fortunate to have a doctor on staff. We hired a doctor through a grant that we received from a great organization here in Atlanta that is focused on health. I think everybody knows who I'm talking about. And through that grant, we were able to hire a doctor about 2019. So we had a doctor on staff. And so the lockdown happens. supply chains are closed. And now we are the only people with food and a doctor. So we end up partnering with the government of Kenya, to local government, not the main government, the local government. So we continue doing ministry and we continue producing food because people are dying. More people are dying from hunger at that time than COVID. So there's not a lot of cases of COVID when it started. And so we were very essential to ministry happening. But then a unique idea came. Wow, what is everybody else doing? So all this huge uh, Tier 1, Tier 2 organizations, I consider ourselves a Tier 5. The Tier 1, Tier 2s, these are the $300 million organizations. We started reaching out to them, and they started seeing our posts, and they started asking, where is this food coming from? And we had a moment that we thought, okay, now is the moment that Joseph has made it to the promised land, because we have food, and they have funds. And we're gonna sell this food, and we're gonna be okay. And I can say this on this podcast that we felt God saying, "Do not sell any food. Donate every food so that every organization that is affiliated or working in the community you serve, they do not stop doing ministry." And so that's what we did. We ended up taking what we call consider our Joseph project because in to end of 2019, God and I, I'm saying this very clear, and I don't like to use God's name if it's not God, but we put a document in the end of 2019 where we felt God said, and we didn't feel, God said, put in food in your storage. And I called it the Joseph Project. I have all the documentation from 2019. In the past, we gave out all our food, but God said save some food. So we saved some food. I know for some listeners there, they're like, I did a year from God. Well, 2020 came and there was no food. And the food that we had in that warehouse was the only food people survived on. So I can say that confidently now that I believe God spoke to us. I don't know where everybody's on their faith, but now I can look back and say he did speak to us on that that level. And so that food became not just food for serving International, national, but became food for other organizations. And I'll name them because we're great friends. That became food for Convoy of Hope. That became food for Feed the Hungry. That is based in Indiana. That became Food for Unstoppable Foundation. We and all these other organizations and churches, and we worked together. There was no competition. It was not you and me. It was like, hey, how can we continue doing this ministry? We did not sell food to any organization at that time. We just able to work together, and we continued moving forward with ministry. But I'll wait for the next question because there's good news at that. At the end of the day, from a fundraising perspective, as we continued to support them, God continued to bring money and funds to serve. Last year, 2020 became our biggest, biggest, biggest year. Ministry-wise, we grew. Ministry, not funded. I'll say ministry. We grew by 300% wow. in 2020. Financially, we raised 300000 more than we did in 2019. It was the greatest year. There was a week, and this is, this for me is a lot. It might not be a lot for some listeners, or for other, but I was getting 50,000 checks almost literally every two days. And we have a culture. Every time we receive a dollar or $10 or $10,000, we have a cowbell in our office. We ring it. I was ringing that bell every day because people who had never known, never heard of serve, were sending, some people got a they were just sending their wealth, like somebody 50,000. tears. They had 50,000 chicks coming in nonstop. And we never did one event. We never went out to raise money. And so I can tell you that we had a great plan. But the only plan was when God said, keep your food because there's going to be a time. We, we did not know there was going to be a time, but now knowing there's going to be a time there was no food. So that's how we ended up having the greatest year that has grown to some other great things I can share about here in the next few minutes.
0: Well, ideally, that is mind-blowing, and it's just a demonstration of how faithfulness and listening to God's will, even when you don't understand and you don't know what's coming in the future, whether it's next year or 10 years from now, God has a plan. And the way that He leveraged serves obedience, and it's just an incredible story. I appreciate you sharing that. I'd love to hear more about the spread of the gospel during that same time.
2: Yeah, so we were, again, in a unique position. Having a doctor was probably the best thing we could ask for. So our doctor was able to train our teams on safety. In my office, I have the hazmat suit. At that time, we had no information about COVID. So you have to understand there's, there's a lot of a fear. And so our team was able to follow all the COVID, you know, procedures to make sure that they were safe. But also there's people who are dying because of the lockdowns made it impossible for food to come to those areas, the remote areas. Right now, the area we serve doesn't even get food. It gets food like once a month. Few trucks come in from the market and that could not happen because everything was on lockdown. But because we were working with local governments, we were given a pass to be able to access those areas. We were given, we worked with a great partner, Mission Aviation in Kenya, they have planes. So we're also able to fly food into some of those areas And through that time, we changed how we do ministry. So our ministry was based on bringing people to one central area and sharing Christ. And it was great. We have some great returns from that. But we had to move into a door-to-door setup. So when we go into one village or one, they call it a manata, that's about five, six homes together. They could be about 50 people. And so our pastor started going from what we'd consider door-to-door to door And then they take their land cruiser to another. So every time they're done with one, they wash their hands, they do everything. Then they go back in the land cruiser to the next village. But we learned something. We learned that when the men were in a group setting with all their other men, what we had used in the past, they were not confident to raise their hands and say, I want to know Jesus. I want to accept Jesus. But when we got them in their homes on a one-on-one setting without access to their friends, they're being sheltered from conversations from their friends. Now they're home, had nothing to do, no TV, no radio. We're talking remotes. All they heard was the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we had the greatest opportunity through COVID. And that's why you see we had over 6,000 salvations is because we started going door to door and the men started saying yes to Jesus, which is a model we had never used in the past because in a community setting, the men did not respond in the same way. So that was how we... Changed way, the way we're doing ministry. No staff member got COVID. We ended up on the local news in Kenya a number of times working with the government. I don't think some of the times the government used us was all for good. I think some of it for political. But at the end of the day, we wanted to share Christ, and we were going to use any platform. We don't care what platform you give us. We'll take the advantage to share Christ. And at the end of the day, we were able to expand our ministry bigger than ever before in the year 2020.
1: Yeah, everything about your experience through COVID just reflects on how great God is and how much bigger of a picture he has of the world and his people and what's going on. And I mean, we just talk about that all the time about how we need to trust God's vision more than our own. And you guys so clearly demonstrated that through what for most of the world was a pretty horrific year. And, and God blessed that obedience and that is just an incredible example of that so thanks for sharing all of that I wanted to pivot and, and ask and you've mentioned a number of organizations at this point that you guys have partnered with and worked with and I was hoping you could just give us a little bit of kind of the behind the scenes of what it looks like to partner with other organizations and to mutually encourage each other and how you use your strengths and strengths of what other organizations are good at to mutually achieve your goals
2: that has been a personal passion the last few months is you know you look at the corporate america going back to the apple example if you go to their website most of the parts that they have on the phone come from different companies now there's different you know they they work on shares there's a cost to that but apple realized that they cannot create or build that phone without partnering with other people I think sometimes in the church, we have this thing of competition. I'm not sure where it started, but it's, it's my church. It's my ministry. I am not going to work with you. And I am so big about cheering other ministries. I cheer the ministry so much that other people don't know if I work for serve because I want I, there's people who hear this and be like, this guy works for serve. I thought he works for another ministry in Atlanta because I love to cheer other people. We are in this together. If I hear a ministry down the street raised a million dollars, I am so happy for them. Their win is my win because at the end of the day, we all want to share Christ. And I think that's the first thing we have to drop. We have to drop this competition. If we're genuinely here to share Christ, then we should be all on the same team. I want to learn from people who have done it better than me. And there's so many of those people who have done that. So number one is just taking that heart of competition out from the way we view ministry. And so with that said, you know, because of our the 2020 and partnering with that organization and given, given with no strings attached, just given, we were able to create some great relationships. I had presidents and vice presidents of some of the major organizations in America, you know, reach out to me through LinkedIn, call me, and I created this network of what I consider high profile people that I look up to, people that have made more impact. Than I will in my lifetime were calling me on the phone, checking on me, seeing how I'm doing. And through those relationships and conversations, I was able to share with them our model of our supply model and what we were doing by producing the food in Kenya. And you know, for some, you know, I ended up sharing with the COOs, the operation people, and they realized, hey, ooh, if I go with this, what Adili is saying, there's a chance that I might lose my job. If they don't need me to ship stuff to to Kenya, then I don't have a job here. And my goal is for me not to have a job. My goal is that we can make serve and other organizations so successful that when we say we've been in countries for 25 years, we can see change happening. You know, for me personally, I'm going to get a little bit personal on this, but I am almost tired of us as NGOs and nonprofits saying we have been in communities for 20 years. And the communities I grew up in, People are still dealing with poverty. If I worked any other job in this world, it would not be accepted for me to brag about 25 years, 50 years, whatever years of ministry when people are living below poverty level and me calling that success. That really bothers me because is it that we are just not smart enough? Have we not figured it out? I think to me comes down to one thing. We are not working as a team. We have one mission and we feel like we got it. If we do our part, it's going to end. The reality is that we have to hold hands together and work and make this happen. And so if your organization is great at fundraising and development and sharing stories, partner with somebody who's great at supply chain and logistics and ministry and, and find a way to work together. It's not a competition. There are people who give to me. They are not about salvation. So they want to focus on nutrition. I will give them what they're looking for. But at the end of the day, they have seen that my mission to share Christ does not take away from their mission to bring nutrition in Africa. We can partner together. In fact, this is a sad reality. I'm about to give you a sad statistic. I was told to take out the name Jesus on my website, on our website, serve that we would raise more money. True story. And people told me, You're not even saying Jesus. You're using the word Christ. That is just too heavy. And I was advised, take it down. If you go to our website right now, we use food as a platform to share Christ. Not to share the love of Christ, because we also realize the love of Christ can be me buying you coffee. I don't have to share Christ. It's the love of Christ. But we are bold about what we do. But here's a statistic I was going to give you. Most people who fund me are not even churches. Most people who see the impact and love what we're doing are companies. I have more businesses that are not Christian based that fund what we do more than the church. Now, that's not a bad thing about the church. I'm not here to diss the church. I'm not here to be negative about the church. But I'm here to say that if you do what you're doing right, people will partner with you no matter what your stance is because people are going to realize that impact is happening. And yes, you might be about Jesus, and yes, we might be about nutrition. But we can find a common area where we can work and bring change together. And so through those efforts, we've been able to partner with some great organizations. Right now, we have a massive response in Congo, North Kivu, where a few months ago, there was a volcano that destroyed a whole community. Over 40,000 people were displaced and earthquakes and all that kind of stuff. And because Convoy had already worked with us, we got to partner with Convoy of Hope, And now we're on the ground together, you know, sharing resources, responding, saving lives, bringing people to Christ. And it's just been a beautiful partnership with their disaster team there. And the other side of that is they're using served food. And so they are creating jobs while responding to needs in that location. So my dream is that I can work with Charity Water. I can work with Food for the Hungry. I can work with everybody. We can hold hands. And these are all great people that I've just named. They're people that I'm already connected with in some way of some sort. But these are people that I believe if we can all come together, we can honestly, honestly end poverty. We can honestly share Christ to every single person in Africa. We can end the idea that people in 2021 are still dying from starvation. To me, that is even sickening. How is it that we live in a generation that me and you can be in different parts of the world and talk through this podcast where people are still dying from hunger. Hunger is not like some kind of disease. This is easy, simple fix. And so we are looking at how we can unite together. I have land cruisers, you don't. I'll give you my land cruisers to distribute your food. You have food, I have land cruisers. Why can we not partner? So those are the kind of conversations I've been bringing up And they will be so successful. We have been able to partner and we've been able to grow. And I'm just looking forward to seeing that not just happen with us, but with everybody in the nonprofit world.
1: Amen to that. I would love to see that explode on a global scale and just to see what God does with that.
2: It's been beautiful. It's been beautiful. And and like just seeing the results of it starting, I feel that that's something in the future we'll look back and, and really consider success because like I said, I'm not good at everything. In fact, I'm only good, we're really supply, supply chain is our strength, and I'm not good at fundraising, and somebody else is good at that. Why not me work or learn from them to expand what we're doing? You know, I feel I'm a more of an operation person, and so this is the kind of things that my weakness is somebody's strength. Let's partner together, and let's Mm -hmm. make this happen.
1: Amen. So, as we're getting closer towards the end of the show, how can listeners learn more about Serve and Get involved.
2: There's a few things. So, number one is again our, our mission is to use food as a platform to share Christ. You can go to our website, serveone.org. That's S-E-R-V one.org. But here's the thing like that might be the one I've said that I've talked about people partnering with us. I will say something, I've said in churches, some people get upset, but I don't need you to partner with us. I need you to partner with somebody. We might not be your style. You might be like this is a dilly guy, it's not my style. But here's the only thing I ask. Don't listen to this podcast and do nothing. Okay, don't listen to this podcast and say, oh, I didn't like it daily, so I'm not going to do anything. No, we might not be the style of people you want to partner with. We might be too rogue, too crazy, too risky. That's who we are. <laughs> we, are we, we consider ourselves pirates. We just go out there. We don't spend too much time in boardrooms trying to figure out how to share Christ. We're going to share Christ, and that's what we do. We might be too radical for some people. But the only thing I ask is don't listen to this podcast and go back to your normal life. I hope that you can listen to this and other sessions, other great people that have been on this podcast and say, hey, listen, I can do something. Be that in your community here in Atlanta, be that in California, be that in Kenya. I hope that that's what can happen, because if another organization wins, I win, too. So when I get to heaven, I hope that they can say, hey, in that podcast, you were too crazy. And somebody thought, I'm not going to join Serve, so I'm going to join this other great organization. And because of that, I'm here in heaven because they came and shared Christ. I hope that happens because I'd be so happy if that happened. So please find somewhere to give to. God has blessed us. We have a great budget, and I want you to find somebody else. Find somebody who's struggling in ministry today and partner with them. That's my only wish for everybody.
0: Well, yeah, ideally, I completely agree. And, you know, stepping into that partnering with an organization or even other individuals, it's just such a overwhelming sense of community and purpose. And it really impacts your life to be contributing in some way with your time, with your resources, with your energy, with your prayer to something bigger than yourself, to something like completing the Great Commission, or solving the water crisis, or providing nutritious food to people who are starving. It's so needed, and everyone can play a role in that. So thank you for for that call to action. We're just about out of time here, so I wanted to leave a few minutes for our manager minute. We talk on this show a lot about how we are managers of God's wealth. And when we have guests on the show, we love to get some perspective from you on how our listeners can better manage God's wealth. So do you have something you can share for our manager minute?
2: I'd love to. I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I shared early today about amplifying and how money amplifies, you know, kind of what's in your heart. So one of the great things I like to do is look at my budget, look at how much I'm spending and see where is it the loudest. What I'm saying loudest is where I'm, is my spending most at? What is the place am I spending at buying fancy things? Am I spending giving? And so that has been a model of my personal life. And I have personal stories you hear about, but I have personal stories of where God has really, really asked me to step out in faith. And I've been able to see him do amazing things through the little that I have. He's been able to really do a lot more. But one of my personal things that excites me is getting the next generation to be a part of what we're doing. I think there's this idea that, you know, to get people excited, they have to be a certain age, a certain gender, certain community. And I think the fact that I'd like to get more, you know, get more people involved in giving, more people involved in generosity. And I think generosity has always centered around a few. And what would that look like if we started getting the young kids to learn about what is happening around the world or in our community and get them to participate at a young age in being part of the solution. I believe, and I'm going to say this, I believe that in my lifetime, if God allows me to live to an old age, that in the area that I serve, I believe that there's not going to be one person dying from hunger. I'm not saying that for the rest of the world. I'm not saying that for Africa. I'm saying that for one area with thousands and thousands of people. And so that's my passion. I believe I'm going to do it. But what would it look like if the next generation had the same passion for the bigger region? What if you had five idealists who were smarter than me, who had better education, who could speak better than me, who were not as crazy as me, and they could change the world? What if? You know, the, the truth is those people are not out there. They are already here. They're alive. They're in your home. They're your kids. They're the people you see every single day. It's not some random person out of space who's going to come and change this. It is the people that are next to you. So the biggest thing I'm going to really encourage people, if you're already given, thank you so much. I've been on both sides. I've been on the side without food. I've been on the side that is giving food. I've been on the side of distributing food. But what my call is, get the next generation involved. Start getting your kids to partner with you and go teach them how to save, teach them how to give, teach them how to serve. Because I believe that's how we're going to be able to share Christ with all the nations. And also not just from that standpoint, but bring life in the world. So that would be my advice to everybody. And I'm personally practicing. I have four kids. They're the joy of my life. My oldest is nine. His name is Moses. And, oh, man, I just can't wait. go out to ministry with him i'm already teaching him to serve he's asking me some great questions and that's the best part my success is not built on how much food i can give out it's built on how i can get my kids to replicate and grow and expand and bring change around the world that will be the greatest day for me
1: that is amazing advice and i love how you phrase that i have four little girls myself and i am so excited to see What God might do through them one day. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Adili, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us to share your own story and experience what God has done in your life and also the incredible work that he is doing through Serve. So thanks for being with us tonight. I
2: appreciate it. It was my honor to be on this podcast. Thank you all so much and God continue to bless you. And if there's anything I can do to serve you, please, please reach out.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them in one of our future episodes. Even better, join the conversation on the finish line forums. There you can discuss your thoughts about recent episodes, read stories of generosity, and ask questions about setting a financial finish line check it out at finishlinepledge.com/forum. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com/episode28. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.